welcome to First Church. So great to see you guys. We are a place of people who love Jesus and love like Jesus, and we're just so glad you're here. And right now, we want to welcome in our Stone Canyon family. They're joining us, as well as others who are joining us online. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our time of study here today. And we're continuing on today, actually we're wrapping up a series that we've been in over the past few weeks called Level Up. And it's a series on God's design for marriage, for relationships. Before we do that though, I have some exciting housekeeping stuff I need to do. In case you don't know, Easter is only six weeks away. And our staff has been planning for that. Somebody's excited about it. I am too. And so we want to go ahead and challenge you now to start inviting people to come to our Easter services. At Stone Canyon here at North Garnett, we hope to have a huge crowd. And we had a huge crowd last year, but we want to prepare a little bit better for that crowd this year. We're anticipating our biggest Easter crowd in a long time. And so here at North Garnett, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to add an 8 a.m. service on Easter Sunday in addition to our other services. Now, we've done that in the past, but what we're doing different this year is we want to challenge 400 of our normal attenders here at North Garnett to try to go to that 8 a.m. service. Now, the reason why we're doing that, I know it's early, but we want to make some space at our 9.30 and 11 o'clock services for all the guests and visitors that are going to come. So if you're able to attend that 8 a.m. service, if you go to our church app or online, we have a special page just for our Easter events. If you will register and say you want to come to that 8 a.m. service, that will help us prepare for child care and all that good stuff. But we would love to have 400 of you volunteer to do that. Now, if you're going to bring somebody with you, a guest, a visitor, and they can only come to the 9.30 or 11 o'clock, still come with them. We understand that. But if you're able to be at that 8 o'clock service, we want to challenge you to do that. It would really help us out as we make space for all the many people that will be here for Easter Sunday. Uh, but with that said, I'm going to change gears. We're going to jump into the message today. And I'm going to change gears by talking about something that probably we all like to talk about, Chick-fil-A. Any Chick-fil-A fans in the room? Let me hear you. At Stone Canyon, Chick-fil-A fans? Okay, several of you. That's what I thought. Good Christian people. So I want to see what is your favorite item at Chick-fil-A? What you like to get the, the most? And I've got some Chick-fil-A staples up here. First of all, I have a classic Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. I also have with me a box which typically holds Chick-fil-A nuggets, okay? I know we have some chicken nugget fans. I also have a cup which did have a milkshake in it, but my assistant in the office drank it the other day. So uh, now it's just an empty cup, but it represents a Chick-fil-A milkshake. And then I have another cup which I'm going to say represents Chick-fil-A sweet tea. And I know we probably have some sweet tea fans uh, that are listening to this message as well. So I just want to do a quick poll, shout out, holler, hoop, whatever you want to do, whistle. I'm from Kentucky, so I'm used to all that kind of stuff. So shout out, which is your favorite of these four, okay? So let me hear you. First of all, how many of you, if you had to pick one of these four, would pick a classic Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich? Oh, more than I thought. Okay, cool. How many of you would pick Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets? Not as many as I thought. I thought this one would win, but okay. How about a Chick-fil-A shake? Anybody like their milkshakes? Okay, Zeb over there definitely likes the milkshakes. We always know where Zeb is. Okay, and how many of you would choose their sweet tea? Any sweet tea fans? Not as many, man. I'm not in the South anymore, am I? Okay, uh, maybe you guys still call yourself in the South. I know, that's all right. Well, I have to admit, my favorite thing at Chick-fil-A is actually not up here. My favorite thing at Chick-fil-A is their lemonade. I love their lemonade. Okay, a few people are with me there. And I like their lemonade so much that I was spending a lot of money on it. And so I decided to try to create it myself. And so I did some research. Actually, I just 
Googled it. But I tried to find the Chick-fil-A recipe for lemonade so I could make it myself, and that way I wouldn't have to buy it so much. And I have to admit, I'm going to brag on myself just a little bit, I think that I came up with a recipe for lemonade that beats Chick-fil-A's lemonade. I really do. And so what I wanted to do this morning, have a quick taste test with you guys and see what you think. And I thought about providing my lemonade for all of you, but that would take a lot of time and money, and I didn't have either this week. So uh, what, I'm, what I've decided to do is just invite one person to come up here. I've already asked him, Zach, if you would come on up, and he's going to try my lemonade. And I want him to tell me whether or not it's better or worse than Chick-fil-A's lemonade. Okay, so here's your mic. You just got to, that's all you got to do. You wore green. I forgot it was St. Patrick's Day. I'm in trouble. Make sure nobody pinches me out there, okay? Oh, let's see. Oh, here are the cups. All right. Oops. Yeah, I'll be uh, cleaning it up later. Okay, here we go. Zach, this is my version. I want you to tell me if it's good or not. Not at all? Not at all. Is, is it missing something? Sugar. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Just want to let you know. Uh, let's give Zach a round of applause for coming. Hey, Zach, before you go, though. Zach, before you go. I do have a Chick-fil-A gift card for you. Do you, you want a bottle of water too? I've got that too if you want to wash your mouth out. Yeah, I intentionally left out sugar from my lemonade. And I did that on purpose to be mean for one thing to Zach. He's in my life group. He's actually our life group leader. So I thought I'd pay him back a little bit for all the boring studies we have. No, I'm kidding. I'm, we actually study my sermon. So I'm insulting myself, I guess. No, I didn't do it to be mean. I did it to make a point. And my point is this, one missing ingredient can ruin the best of recipes. You guys know that. Who wants lemonade without sugar in it? I remember I was at a church function one time, and these older ladies fixed some lemonade for like 100 plus people, and they made it from scratch. They were bragging on how great their lemonade was, and somebody forgot to put sugar in it. And so we all were drinking like, this is gross. This is nasty. And if you ever had that, you know what I'm talking about. But it's not just lemonade. My mom, she makes the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. I love her chocolate, her chocolate chip cookies. But one time we were at her house, and she made some, pulled them out of the oven. They were fresh. They looked kind of weird, but, you know, sometimes they don't always come out right. They don't look right, but they still taste good. Well, we tried them, and the texture was wrong. They tasted weird. We were like, Mom, what happened? And she started to think back, and she said, I forgot to put eggs in them. And so that made a huge difference in her, in her recipe. One missing ingredient can ruin the best of recipes. And that's true not just for lemonade or cooking, it's also true for something as important as marriage. Really, it's true for any meaningful relationship. There are certain things that God has told us are necessary for our relationships to be successful, for our marriages to be all that He intended them to be. And if we're missing any of those things, then we're in trouble. You see, We've been studying over the past four weeks God's design, His idea for marriage and for relationships for a reason. Because marriage is God's idea. And we've been talking about that week after week. Marriage, it's not my idea. It's not your idea. It's not our government's idea. It's not our court system's idea. It's not the media's idea. Marriage is God's idea. He's the one that established it. He's the one that designed it. And God established marriage at the very beginning at creation. Before God ever established a kingdom or a monarchy or a government system or even a law, God established marriage. And that means it's sacred. 
and it's at the foundation of human civilization. So therefore, understanding his design for marriage is extremely important. And it's important not just for those who will get married or who are married, but it's important for society in general because God intended marriage for our good. Understanding his design for marriage better illustrates his character, helps us understand his character. And also it allows for us to know how relationships are supposed to work and what God intended for them. And so I've said every week in this series, my goal, and my goal is that we here at First Church be a church with the strongest marriages and the healthiest relationships anywhere. Because I believe that when we are a church that has the strongest marriages and the healthiest relationships anywhere, we will make a huge impact on the culture around us. We will show people in a better way who God is, and we will strengthen the relationships within our culture. But in order for us to do that, we have to understand, we have to wrap our minds around God's design, His recipe for marriage. And what I want to point out today is that the Bible teaches there is one ingredient for marriage that we cannot live without. One ingredient for marriage that a marriage cannot survive without, and it's grace. And I believe this isn't just true for marriage, it's true for any meaningful relationship we have. Without grace, relationships struggle. Without grace, all relationships struggle. And here's why. Because most of the difficulties we face in our relationships are not primarily caused by our differences, but by what we have in common. And what we have in common is sin. That's what the Bible teaches. The one thing we all share in common is sin. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. In other words, all of us are like the rest of us, at least when it comes to sin's influence on our lives. Sin puts us all in the same boat. Sin puts us all on the same playing field. Yes, the individual sins we commit may be different, but sin has infected and affected us all. And in that way, all of us are like the rest of us. And here's the thing, sin has the remarkable ability to make us feel really insecure. It causes us to believe that we need to have the upper hand in all of our relationships. It causes us to think that we need to keep score and penalize the other person when they harm us. It causes us to think that we have to one-up the people that we are supposed to love all the time. And what ends up happening is we convince ourselves that the things that we've done to others, whether it be a spouse or a friend or a child or a parent or a coworker, neighbor, whoever, it convinces us that the things we've done to others are not near as bad as what they've done to hurt us. And over the past few years, I've come to grips with the reality that it took me a while to understand, but I think it's so important that we get, and it's this. A relationship will always be unhealthy when one person thinks they're less sinful than the other. Let me say that again. A relationship of any kind will always be unhealthy when one person thinks they're less sinful than the other. I mean, let's be honest here for a second. I hope we always are with one another. If you spend any time with a person at all, any time, eventually that person is going to disappoint you. Eventually that person is going to frustrate you. 
Eventually that person is going to annoy you. They may get under your skin. They may even hurt you. If you spend any amount of time with a person, they're going to disappoint you. They're going to frustrate you. And here's the thing, the same is true for you when it comes to them. You're going to frustrate them. You're going to disappoint them. You're going to hurt them. You know why? Because of the one thing we all have in common, sin. None of us are perfect. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. We all make bad choices. And that's why the Bible teaches in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. I have a friend that often says, grace in marriage is like oil in a car. If the level is too low, it's going to create unnecessary friction. And if the level is too low for too long, it's going to lead to a breakdown. And that's why I've come here today really to say one thing. And I've already said it. I'm going to say it over and over again because I think it's so important for us to get, especially as we close out this series, without grace, relationships struggle. Without grace, relationships always struggle. And if you want your marriage to be all that God intended it to be, you've got to stay gracious. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time we have. We're going to talk about what that means, what it means to stay gracious in our marriages and our relationships. And the first thing that the Bible tells us that means is we have to anticipate the need for grace. Because let's face it, showing grace doesn't always come naturally for us. And when God asks us to do something that doesn't come naturally, that means we have to intentionally do it. We have to work at it. So on a practical level, what that means is we don't wait until the heat of the moment to be gracious. If you wait until the heat of the moment, like when somebody frustrates you or upsets you or annoys you, if you wait until the heat of the moment to decide whether or not you're going to be gracious with them, you're probably not going to be gracious with them. You're probably going to choose to cling to anger or bitterness or selfish desires and wants. You don't wait to the heat of the moment to decide whether or not you're going to be gracious. It's something that you have to decide beforehand. It's something that you have to decide ahead of time. And that's true for so much in life because we have to know what our convictions are before we get into the heat of the moment. Because if we wait till then, we might make the right choice. But typically in the heat of the moment, we make the wrong choice. Alice and I, this uh, this May, will be married 11 years. And for some of you, you hear 11 years and think, wow, they're just kids. Other of you think, they're old. So it all depends on your perspective. But this May, we will have been married 11 years. And I've got a picture from our wedding day, if you want to look up on the screen. I mean, we were just kids, I know. We were young and stupid, still are in some ways. But that was us almost 11 years ago on our wedding day. And I have to be honest with you. I don't remember a whole lot from our wedding ceremony. I really don't. It was kind of a blur. There was a lot going on. And so I don't remember a whole lot from the actual ceremony itself and all the buildup to it. I think Allison remembers a lot more than I do. But a couple things, a few things I do remember. Uh, One is we had to wait forever, my groomsmen and me, we had to wait forever uh, for everybody else to get ready because the girls, they were getting ready and taking pictures and it took them forever. And of course, I was allowed to see Allison beforehand. And, you know, it took them like four hours to get ready. we were done in like 15 minutes. It didn't take us any time at all. And so we were just waiting and waiting. And honestly, 
I missed Allison. I was used to seeing her all the time, and I missed her. So I decided to write her a note. I couldn't actually physically see her, but I decided to write her a note. And something that we had been doing up until that point is we had watched a TV show where a couple on that show were getting married, and they kept saying to one another as they got closer to their wedding day, five more days, baby, four more days, baby, three more days. They just kept counting down. So we started to do that like months in advance. We were like, three more months, baby, two more months, baby. And that final week, we would call one another, see each other, and, you know, two more days, baby one more day so I decided to write Allison a little note and the photographer captured a picture of the note I sent her I actually grabbed some stationery from the church where we were and wrote on it because I didn't have anything else to write on and here's a picture of the note that I sent Allison it's not that great but it says hey Allison I love you and I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you it's our day baby love you Chad now this is the point where you guys go Oh, yeah, I know. It's sweet, corny, and anyway. But I did it, and she loved it. I mean, her mom was with her, and her mom loved it, and it was sweet and all that. But I remember doing that. That's something that stands out to me. I remember when Allison walked down the aisle. I remember that moment, seeing her for the first time. And there are a couple other things that I remember, but I don't remember a whole lot of detail about the actual ceremony itself. But I do remember a conversation that Allison and I had the very next day. Because I had a professor in college that told me, he said, Chad, when you get married, I want you to make a promise on your wedding day. I want you to make a promise to Allison and have her promise back to you that you will never use the D word. And by that, he meant divorce. And I thought, you know, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So I didn't do it on our wedding day. I was kind of busy. I didn't do it on our wedding day. But the next day, we were waiting at the airport to leave to go for our honeymoon. And as we're waiting at the airport, I turned to her and said, you know, I had a professor in college that's said that we need to promise right now not to ever use the D word. And Allison said, you know, I think that sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah, let's do that. So we made that promise to one another right then. And for almost 11 years now, we've never used that word to one another. Jokingly, seriously, anything. We've never, ever used it. And what that has done by making that promise early on, we just kind of took it off the table. Like it's not there. We just took it off the table because it's not even an option for us. And we don't want to make any decision that would lead to that because it's just off the table. We made that decision up front the day after we got married. And I've told that to other people who've been married for some time and they've told me, we wish we would have done that because it's so easy to throw out that word, especially in the heat of the moment. You say things you don't mean and then you can't take it back. It's important to know what you believe. It's important to understand your convictions before you get to the heat of the moment. And it's, that's true for so much in life. Guys, if you're married right now, you need to make a commitment at this moment. You are not going to have an affair on your spouse. You are not going to cheat on your spouse. And if you make that commitment now, and every single morning when you wake up, you know, I am not going to cheat on my spouse. And when that coworker starts to flirt with you of the opposite sex, you're not going to flirt back. When that coworker wants to go out to lunch with the two of you, you're not going to do it because you're not going to do anything that takes you down that path because you've already made that conviction in your heart. Because here's the thing, and I'm just going to be very blunt with you. When you get to the hotel room, that's not the time to be figuring out your convictions. You might make the right decision, but in the heat of the moment, you're likely not to. That's why I tell teenagers and students, you need to decide right now whether or not you're going to save yourself for marriage. Because when clothes start getting unbuttoned and unzipped, now's not the time to figure out your convictions. You might make the right choice, but you might not. The heat of the moment is not the time to be figuring out your convictions. It's a decision you need to make beforehand. And that's true when it comes to showing your spouse, showing a friend, showing whoever grace. You need to just know 
and realize that grace is going to be needed eventually for your friendship, for your relationship, for your marriage to be healthy. So just decide now, we are going to have a relationship of grace because we all need it at times. It's going to happen. The second thing that I think we need to understand if we're going to stay gracious is we need to refuse to keep score. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. See, true love, real love, love as modeled for us by God, keeps no record of wrongs. Now, we understand this, and we've experienced this when it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We expect Him to keep no record of wrongs, and that's what He's done for us. But we don't always experience that in our earthly relationships, do we? See, our culture teaches the exact opposite. Our culture tells us that we always need to have the upper hand, that we need to keep score. In fact, our culture is all about keeping score. But staying gracious means you're not going to pull out hurtful wounds from the past as a trump card against your spouse. Staying gracious means that you're not going to define your spouse by their worst mistakes. See, God hasn't done that to us. And if you need motivation uh, to make sure that you don't keep score with somebody that you love, you need to remember daily what God has done for you. Because God doesn't define us by our worst decisions. He doesn't pull out our past sins every time He wants us to do something in order to hang that over our heads. No, God doesn't hold grudges against us. Our God keeps no record of wrongs. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that God excuses sin. He doesn't excuse sin. But He does forgive it. And He forgives it over and over and over again. So in our marriages, in our relationships, staying gracious doesn't mean that we ignore sin or we um, look over it or we wink at it or anything like that. We don't excuse it. No, we hold one another accountable. That's what a healthy relationship does. But it means that when sin is acknowledged and sin is confessed, we forgive it. And it's not that we forget about it. Because sometimes it's hard to forget past sin. People say forgive and forget. That's almost impossible to do because I just can't take a memory and forget it. I don't have that ability. Maybe you do. But what that means is, hey, it's still there and you know it's there, but you're not going to hold it over your spouse's head. You're not going to continue to go back to it and bring it up. You're going to forgive it. Now, what that also means is we don't need to take advantage of grace. I mean, if you have a spouse right now that doesn't keep record of your wrongs, that's great because a lot of people don't have that. So don't take advantage of it. Instead of continuing to do wrong, having a spouse that shows you constant grace should motivate you to do what's right. So if you have a spouse that's been gracious to you when you have said hurtful words, that doesn't give you permission to keep using hurtful words. No, it should motivate you to clean up your language and to be more careful with your words. If you have a spouse that has forgiven you because of your selfish tendencies, that doesn't give you permission to keep being selfish. No, instead, that should motivate you to spend more time with your spouse and focus on them and your kids and other relationships you may have. If you've been, or if there's been a pornographic addiction that's been uncovered and your spouse has forgiven you, showed you grace, that doesn't mean you have permission to keep going back to the computer because, hey, he or she's going to forgive me. No, that should motivate you. That should compel you not to go back. And whether it's lies you've told or whether it's laziness or anything else that your spouse has forgiven you for, because they've shown you grace, that should motivate you to do what's right. And that's how God's grace works. In Titus 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God teaches us to say no. What does God's grace do? It doesn't give us permission to sin, but it teaches us to say 
no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. See, sometimes people will say to me, Chad, I think you preach too much on love. I think you preach too much on grace. I know for some of you that's odd. Like, why would anybody ever say that? They have on more than one occasion. They've said, Chad, I think you preach too much on love, too much on grace. And if you keep doing that, then people will never learn to obey. I completely disagree. Because I believe the greatest motivator for obedience is love. And that's why the Bible says the grace of God teaches us to say no. Because when you truly understand just how huge God's grace is, just how enormous it is, and you understand what you deserve and what God has given to you and continues to give you, it motivates you to live for Him and walk away from that old way of life. And anytime I see somebody that says, oh yeah, I love God's grace, but they just keep going back to sin, like God's grace gives them permission to sin, I know that's a person who's never really come to grips with the grace of God. Grace, love, is the greatest motivator for obedience. And today, if you're somebody that says, Chad, I know what you're saying, I get that, I know it's biblical, but that's hard to do, and you continue to keep score, let me tell you something. Satan will use that scorecard that you continue to keep against you He will use that scorecard to cause division and destruction in your marriage and in your family. He'll do it. He will tear up your life with it. So if you're married today and you and your spouse have a tendency to keep score, I challenge you, have a grace conversation with them. And your relationship may not automatically change to one that is centered on grace. It may take some time, but have that grace conversation today. And then last, when we stay gracious, it means that we choose to lift up our spouse. Ephesians 5, verse 21, Paul is writing to Christian households, and he's specifically talking to husbands and wives, and look at what he says in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that word submit is a word that a lot of people in our culture today don't like because they think it's a demeaning or a devaluing term, but it's honestly not. It's a word that literally means to place yourself under someone else, to choose to place yourself under someone else for a purpose. And that purpose for which you place yourself underneath someone is to lift them up. It's not a degrading term. It's a choice you make because you love someone that you're willing to lower yourself in order to lift them up. And in practical terms, it means this, you first, me second. Let me say that again. It means that this is your attitude. You first, me second. That's the way of Jesus when it comes to every relationship. That's the example of Jesus. You first, me second. And moms and dads today who have newborn babies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because every single night when you basically say to your newborn, to your infant, you eating is more important than me sleeping... What are you saying? You first, me second. That's the best definition of love. And it's a type of love that God has showed us. Jesus lowered himself so he could lift you and me up. And in God's design for marriage, husbands and wives are to do just that for each other. Because true love is willing to make sacrifices, willing to give up your own selfish wants and desires in order to lift up the person you love. Submission is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of love, because you lift up those you love. 
Some, uh, a little while ago, my family had the chance to go to Disneyland, and we were on one of the streets one day, and there was like this little street show going on with, you know, characters and all that, and there were a huge crowd of people. Alex, my five-year-old, he couldn't see what was going on, so I picked him up, and I put him on my shoulder so he could see. And he's five years old, but he's a hoss. I mean, he's a big boy. And so for a while, it was fun. But after a little while, he was getting heavy, and my shoulders were hurting. I was kind of getting sore, and I was trying to maneuver to make it more comfortable. You dads have probably been there before. You know what I'm talking about. And so I'm trying to hold him up. And even though I wanted to put him down, I didn't. You know why? Because I could hear his laughter. He was having such a good time, having so much fun. I did not want to see that end. So I kept holding him up. And yeah, I couldn't see everything. And yeah, I was uncomfortable. But it was worth it to lift him up, to give him something he couldn't have on his own. And that's what this word submit means. It means to lift somebody up so they can have something that they could not have, something they could not have on their own. And that's the opposite of what our culture teaches. Our culture doesn't teach you first, me, second. Our culture is all about self. But nothing will kill a marriage quicker than these three things. Stubbornness, selfishness, and self-righteousness. And if you're single or you're dating right now, let me just give you fair warning. You do not want to marry somebody who has a me-first, you-second mindset. Because if you marry somebody who has a me-first, you-second mindset, the opposite of what Jesus wants us to, the opposite of the way Jesus tells us to live, it will lead to nothing but pain, heartache, and loneliness. Now, Jesus calls us to lift one another up not because that other person deserves it, but because that's what love does. In Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus says, Do for other people whatever you would like to have them do for you. Do for other people whatever you would like for them to do for you. And honestly, if we were to follow that instruction, we don't need to hear another sermon on marriage you don't need to read another book on relationships. You don't need to listen to another podcast on friendship. I think what we need to do is just obey Jesus. Because when we obey Jesus and we do for others what we want them to do for us, it can't help but better our relationships. You know, when Alice and I first got married, I was just so excited and so was she. We were look, we'd been looking forward to our wedding day forever. And then it finally happened and our wedding day was a blast, and everybody who came to our wedding seemed to be very excited for us. Everybody, that is, except for Allison's dad. <laughs> it's not that he wasn't excited. It was just, it was hard for him to say goodbye to his little girl, and I get that. I mean, Allison's dad, he likes me. He did like me. I mean, we hit it off from day one, and he wanted his little girl to be happy and get married. He wanted all that, but still, it was tough for him to say goodbye to his little girl, and on our wedding day, I didn't get that. I didn't understand that, but I get it now. Now that I have a daughter, I understand that. By the way, my daughter, Addie, she turns two today. Today is her birthday and so she's two years old she's my little princess and I don't even want to think about her dating let alone getting married I just don't even want to think about that that just I want that to be way way off in the future somewhere but I get it because no guy is ever going to be good enough for my little girl no guy is going to be good good enough for my little Addie I get that I understand that and the other day I came across a video of a dad who had to give away his daughter and I love what he said to her future husband in this clip take a look at this video Philip, I want to tell you a story. And like all good stories, it starts like this. Once upon a time, there was a father. 
And in case you can't figure that out, that's me. <laughs> this father had a wonderful little boy. He was very happy. But then one day he found out that his wife was going to have no baby. So I prayed, Lord, if it's your will, you make a little girl. And he did. I was the first person to hold her in my arms. I looked at her and I said, Lord, make her like her mother. And he did. She was loving and giving and so good and so kind. But then I realized I was getting left out. So I said, Lord, make her like me. And he did. She can drive a truck and a tractor. She can load hay and strip tobacco. Do you realize what you're getting? <laughs> but at the same time, she was opinionated, <laughs> emotional, and hard-headed. So I said, Lord, that's enough of that. <laughs> Make her like you. And he did. He gave her the desire to serve people. She loves people. She gave her life to being a nurse. She's brought people back from the dead. And she's held the hand of people and breathed their last breath. He gave her a heart for missions and she's trekked all over the world. Pushed canoes up swollen rivers and laid on the floor while bullets whizzed outside so she could tell people about Jesus. But still, something was missing. So I said, Lord, make her happy. And she made You see that look on her face? I never saw that until she made you. And I'm grateful for that. Today I'm giving you the best thing I had to give. I just wanted you to know before I do that how hard me and God's work to get him ready for. <laughs> so, Philip, as I give her to you, I don't think you'll mind if I give you one more word of advice. Me and God's worked hard. Don't screw it up. <laughs> I love that, and I love what the dad says there. I love that video because it can make you laugh and cry all at the same time, but I can see you guys wiping tears too as I look out at you. And I love his words because this dad wants to give his future son-in-law some advice, some words of wisdom, whatever you want to call it, some guidelines even for marrying his daughter. But you can tell there's no bigger cheerleader for that couple than that dad. He's not giving them guidelines because he wants to steal their joy or rob them of fun. He's giving them some instructions, some guidelines, some words of wisdom because he wants to see them succeed. And I think the same is true for our Heavenly Father. We have no bigger cheerleader when it comes to our marriages than our Heavenly Father. He's given us these guidelines for marriage and he's given us guidelines for our relationships not to steal our joy or rob us of having fun. Because he wants what's best for us. 
And he, more than anyone else, wants for your marriage and my marriage to succeed. He is our biggest cheerleader. And so as we close this series, I'd like to talk to those of you in the room or at Stone Canyon today, those online, who may be experiencing a breakdown right now in your marriage. Maybe you feel like you're stuck. Maybe you feel like you're in a rut. Maybe you've experienced a lot of pain over the past few months or years. Maybe you're wondering what went wrong. Maybe you're trying to figure out what the next step is. Maybe you're on the verge of filing papers. Maybe you already have. Maybe you're wondering what you're going to tell your kids. I don't know. But here's what I do know. If your marriage feels lifeless right now, it doesn't have to stay that way. Because we serve a God who specializes in bringing the dead back to life. The same God sorry the same God who resurrected Jesus back from the dead has the power to resurrect your marriage today don't let Satan fill your head with lies don't let the world tell you otherwise you just have to be willing to surrender your marriage to his design and give him the time and the space he needs to work. The same God who brought Jesus back from the dead has the power to resurrect your marriage as well. And that's why we're here as a church to help you out on that journey. We're not just a crowd that meets here once a week. We're a family. We're a community of believers. We're a church. And we're here to help you out in any way you can. So if you need some help, if you need some counseling, you need some advice, some words of wisdom, see one of our staff members, see one of our volunteers today, come see somebody down front at the end of service, go out to the hub, talk to somebody. If you're right now in a situation where you're living with somebody, you're not married, and you know that's not God's plan, come see us, we'll get you hitched. We will get you married, okay? We'll do whatever we can to help you out so that you can live out God's design for your marriage, for your life. We're cheering you on. And our God is cheering you on. Don't believe the lies of Satan. Give your marriage over to God's design. Give him time and space to work. And he'll breathe life into it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today and for this time we've had over the past four weeks to look at your design for marriage and also relationships in general. And Father, I know that a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in this series has been some tough stuff. And I know it's, I know it's these series, these sermons have been full of a lot of sensitive issues. Father, I pray that we listen to what your word has to say to us and that, Father, we do turn our marriages, turn our relationships over to you and give you time and space to work. We thank you for cheering us on, for supporting us, for loving us. And Father, as a church, we just pray that we can be there for one another as we go through this journey of life together. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.